Today's episode is sponsored in part by Palo Alto Networks and its Prisma Sassy, where AI-powered innovation takes center stage. Watch the new Palo Alto Networks virtual event on demand to hear how the latest innovations in Sassy can help your organization. See how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateway, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Watch on demand at paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. Welcome to Packet Pushes Heavy Networking. This is a future of networking episode where we find a suitable victim who has been deep into the network infrastructure and technology market or arena for some time. And they're generally recognized for being outstanding in the field. Today's guest is Brad Casemore, who survived multiple decades as an analyst, especially for IDC, and is widely known amongst many people for making predictions, performing analysis, and the like. This is part two of the exit interview for Brad. As many of you don't know, Brad is actually now retired and possibly the first retired person we've had on the show, having recently abandoned the industry to its own devices, but we're lucky to have him here today to talk about it. You all know that this is part two. A few weeks ago, we published part one of this Future of Networking episode, and the whole conversation really just revolved around AI and the data center, and we really didn't get much past that, but we have a whole bunch of topics that we wanted to get covered. So... Brad, let's just kick off. Let's just assume that all of the idle chit-chat and being nice to each other we did in episode one. So let's pick it up, and I want to talk about zero trust in the campus disruption. Now, the, the campus has become a major revenue source for the the branded vendors for Cisco and Juniper and Extreme, other three I'm particularly thinking of, but also HPE, who's doing very well in that business. And now zero trust has come along to change the shape of that. Do you have a particular view on the campus networking market? Well, I do think, you know, we... <laughs> We, we touched a bit on this in the previous episode. There, there's no question that there's a greater amount of network intelligence coming to the campus, particularly for day two scenarios, right? In the uh, the troubleshooting and remediation of, of day two scenarios. But the campus is going through a lot of changes that are, uh, we'll call them extraneous to, you know, technology. In other words, if if you read the news, and I just read an art- another article earlier today, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of commercial real estate owners and operators expect to see a continued consolidation there, right? And the nature right. of the office is changing, where you know everybody used to have their own um, their own office or cubicle in the past, and now it's turning more to kind of hoteling model, right? Where you'll have a lot more public spaces and that sort of thing, uh, maybe smaller office space, a lot more use of of um, of Wi-Fi. Mm. The current generation. Um, you know, and, and less, we'll call them dedicated connections. Um, that's a trend that will continue to play out, I think. So, you know, I I can, I can see, I think I know where you're going, where, hmm. you know, how much, we'll put it this way, how much dynamism will really be found in some of those environments rolling forward, right? If you've got zero trust is, have I, I don't want to be too glib, but have, have you got it covered, right? Which is... Hmm. Um, I think a good case can be made for something at least approximating that because there are, as I said, economic and, and uh, extraneous factors that are playing in with some of the technology trends that uh, mm. that really facilitate it. Yeah, I guess when I look at campus networks, I, the first thing that uh, we see talked about a lot both uh, on financial calls and from the vendors themselves is just how old the campus networking infrastructure is. That yeah. It's not uncommon for it to be 20 to 25 years old. And like, there's no security, there's no high speed, there's a lot of unreliability. And 
you know, even a lot of the Wi-Fi or the wireless networking that's been put in place is not modern. Like it's its ability to use modern spectrum and and stuff like that. I don't think it's widespread that we've seen a massive refresh of wireless to sort of, you know, Wi-Fi five or Wi-Fi six type style. Um, it, it, certainly, there's been some. Don't get me wrong. You know, if you're running a football stadium and you've got loads of money, you can certainly justify spending a wadge of cash on upgrading it. But what we're seeing now is campus networks attempting to get intelligent. And we're seeing this idea of running an overlay, be it Lisp or EVPN, and then adding security scanning into the campus network. Is that really viable in an era of zero trust? Because to me, the zero trust thing obviates the need for the campus network to do this stuff. Well, if zero trust is being done right, I think in many cases it will obviate it. One thing that we did see, which was kind of, I, I guess you could, say, could call it counterintuitive when I was at IDC, we used to hear reports that during COVID, a lot of vendors were actually, to your point, Greg, they had very old campus infrastructure in place, and they were actually taking the opportunity to think about, okay, mm. how will the campus change when we're when we're back, right? When yeah. we have people back, <laughs> and they were doing their upgrades and overhauls then, yeah, um, which which was kind of interesting. They were taking that occasion to say, okay, now is the time. People aren't here, so I can I can go and put in new infrastructure, you know, put in a new network. Mm-hmm. And and we saw that happen, but you're absolutely right. Another thing that we saw, and this was mainly over in Europe, was kind of, we'll call it for mid-sized businesses, mid-sized enterprises to kind of converge core. In other words, they're using, they're using the same core for the campus and the data center, which was a little interesting and played to the strengths of certain vendors and, and, and not to others. But I would say generally, uh, I'd be in agreement with, with uh, what you're saying. I think for a lot of enterprises, exactly what you've prescribed will work for them. Yeah. So the case there is that if you implement a zero trust, so the assumption would be is that zero trust is what you put to the branch to reduce the security risk around the branch. It's what people are using to work remotely, uh, whether they're in a coffee shop or working from home. And zero trust is, mm, do we need to put a definition around zero trust for this discussion? or I think we do. I feel like mostly I hear about zero trust in regard to remote access, but it doesn't have to be that way. And if some vendors you talk to will say, yeah, we can, our zero trust solution, which it tends to be agent-based, will work uh, when users are in the office on-premise and the campus as well, uh, because you still want to have that zero trust posture regardless of where they are. Right. Coffee shop, office, home, wherever. Yep. It should work. It should. You should be getting the same degree of security regardless of location. You can't just mm. assume that because they're behind the corporate firewall, you, you don't want to have those zero trust controls. But yeah, Brad, do you have a sense? What, what does zero trust mean to you? Well, I, I think it. I think it really needs to encompass all of those all of those scenarios. And really, it's a, it's a breaking of the old uh, what we'll call the, what the crunchy perimeter, right? I mean, that goes away, and zero trust should accommodate users wherever they are. And you know that it should it should facilitate that. And you're right; it's mainly agent based. Um, I, I think, Greg, anything anything you'd like to add in terms of broadening or restricting the definition? I think um, there's three principles underlying zero trust. One is that you verify explicitly, so you whitelist uh, what's happening right, rather than blacklisting. Yep, rather yep. than blacklist, right? So you implicitly deny everything and then permit it. Now that that works where it would never have before uh, because you can have a user connected at the edge of the, in a coffee shop and their traffic is tunneled off to some CASB service, you know, a Zscaler or a Palo Alto Prisma, um, you know, or a Fortinet uh, service. 
and it's all logged and scanned. And if it matches the policy and now the policies don't have to say, match this IP address, match this port number, they now just say, go to Microsoft Azure, use, you know, use SAP or go off to Salesforce or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a whole transition there around zero trust with this ability to scale up the software operation of what users access. And I think the second thing is least privilege. Because you have now got content scanning and policy-based application, you could now say, here's a group of users, they should not have access to Salesforce, right? But more, not so, not. So I will set up a policy so that general admin only gets access to my Oracle. If you're in human resources, you only get access to the Oracle payroll, right? And that sort of stuff. So you have least privilege, whitelisted networking. And then the third part that most people miss is you assume that a breach is happening. So all of your security posture and your tools assume that a breach is happening right now and your tooling and your security, your SOC is actively searching for a breach. It's not passively sitting there waiting for traffic to hit a firewall. It's doing something on all of the traffic flows to be constantly looking for people having got inside and then looking to escalate privilege. And I think if you start with those three, there's a bunch of things that come out of that, like segmentation, identity management, continuous authentication, threat monitoring, digital loss prevention, content scanning, uh, brokering, DLP, user logging, you know, all that stuff extends out of those three principles, if I, if I say. The, the first two that, that, that you covered are definitely common, right? And the, mm-hmm. the thinking is, you know, you have to assume that uh, you have to assume widespread malevolence and therefore, you know, we're going to use whitelisting rather than blacklisting because you're, you're going to, you're going to allow permissions on a, on a, on an exception basis, right? Rather than just, you know, trying to yeah. do it all through firewalling. The third leg of your stool is probably the one that that restricts the market a little, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But that's fine, right? Because, you know, you want to be able to provide a solution that uh, that is full-featured and that provides customers with value. But yeah, I think that's the one where you're talking about the SOC and yeah, we'll, we'll call it active and continuous uh, monitoring or, you know, I guess... Um, mm-hmm. Um, observance, right? Aggressive observance, right? In terms of yeah. uh, assuming that an attack is happening. Now, or that was something happened. that you couldn't do five years yep. ago. That's right. right. Yep. The emergence of this SaaS model, subscription, sending traffic into the cloud rather than sending it to head office for scanning and content analysis in these people who are using, you know, infinite flexibility of cloud processing to scale out that whole process. That changes the nature. And it's all, and most of this is based around an agent at the edge. Yep or tunneling of all traffic from the, the smartphone, the tablet, the, the the laptop or the desktop, right? Yeah, and you, we see this happening, of course, is basically uh, if 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 you look at what's happening in, in obviously the container world and the Kubernetes world, that's why, um, you know, MTLS and some of those other protocols for, for tunneling are enforced right at the right, right at inception, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's part of the mix now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would also say that uh, a couple of key elements, and Greg, you did mention identity as one, but I think that's actually core to zero trust because it is yep. it, it's, it pivots on identity. I think the other thing it pivots on is context. Where are you? Are you in the office? Are you at a coffee shop? Are you at home? That you can apply policies based on that context. I if think you the other suddenly thing is, log in and then your login changes to Brazil from you know London, <laughs> right? That you want to know that because then <laughs> yeah, you're like, well, maybe right. I don't want you on the network. And I think no, the other and, thing is that we touched on is that a lot of the enforcement and the uh, traffic analysis is done in the cloud as opposed to, uh, you know, a stack of appliances, uh, you know, in your DMZ or somewhere else. Yeah, at some sort of nominal perimeter. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Now, my thesis on this is once you implement zero trust for your branch and your workers who are largely out of office, I, I believe that the return to office movement is a short-term thing. Companies want people to come back to the office, but my point is, is that if you're coming back to the office two or three days a week, most people are still out of the office most days of the week, right? So you have to have a zero trust or something approaching a zero trust. And at that point, what's the point of a campus network doing any of the security functions? Because when they come into the office, you're still going to be using the zero trust solution. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I, I would agree with you, right? I think there's a pushback in, in certain industries, in certain companies, the, the the push is a little more aggressive than others, but mm. but we, we are heading to to a more of a permanent hybrid um resolution of you where people work and and your point is is well taken because the thinking is i know in the tech industry is that you need ideation is best done face to face with it with an actual real whiteboard ideation is not done well on you know things like streaming services like you know zoom or etc yeah. you need to kind of have it's that it's done just it's done just fine it's just everybody's used to doing it on a whiteboard because that's the only tool they were ever given yeah it, I know, but people, but the perception is that that it's more of a struggle. Maybe people are, you know, too worried about looking at themselves on the screen or whatever. They're, you know, they're not thinking about the actual thing in the discussion. There's a perception that you still need to do some ideation live, but you don't do ideation generally. You know, five days a week, right? I mean, right. Are, so, you know, it, most of the time people will still be you know, working as you know. Drew was right to say not just at the home, but at the coffee shop and God knows where, right? And, and that's why identity is is so important as part of zero trust because you need to be able to figure out, um, uh, you know, where they need to be or where they should be. And you know, as you said, right, they shouldn't be able to, to switch from Brazil to um, to Japan, for instance. I think this this whole ideation thing is just an excuse that. Uh executives are using to bring people back to the office. I think what it really is, is a management issue that they are uncomfortable with remote management. They feel like they lose some kind of control. Uh, and so the pushback to the office, aside from the fact that they've probably invested a lot of uh, yeah. money in the retail, in the location. But outside of that, I feel like it's more of a management thing. They haven't learned how to do remote management and they're not comfortable with it. And that's why they want people back in the office. It's less about those supposed hallway conversations that lead to the next new million dollar product or whatever. Yeah, it's it's possible. Um, I I do think that there's 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 something that can come from you know unstructured happenstance discussions. I'm not saying people need to be in the office five days a week, and you know I'm not talking about micromanagement. But but I think there's something there, there's some you know occasional gold dust. Not every day, not every time that people meet. Uh, but I I think there's some value that can come from um, we'll call it unstructured discussions right mm -hmm. that, for sure that, yeah yeah and they're I'm hard gonna, to I'm, do i'm just gonna i'm just gonna take you on there right so um you're telling me that a, a random outside the toilet door discussion is going to be good you're absolutely maybe, betting that that's necessary for business maybe not outside the toilet <laughs> that's where they happen yeah. people call it the coffee or and in the corridor but they also happen outside the toilet door while i'm busting to take a number two right i've been bailed that's up by the, right because you'll be preoccupied at that time. Yeah, you probably I've been, be I've been bailed up by a, a CIO or a CFO in exactly that situation more times than I'd care to count. So if you're actually telling me that that is how business is done, that is patently stupid. And if that's the way we run business today, that has to change. 
Well, it's, I don't think it's the way business is done. It's a facet of business. It's a facet of of what I would call badly organized, stupid people who don't know how to structure their work. <laughs> well, I think you're putting it a little tendentiously, but <laughs> that's fine. But I'm not wrong, right? <laughs> I'm walking down the street, but uh, I didn't realize I needed to buy food. But, oh, look, there's a shop. Is that how you feed yourself? No, here's here's what I'm talking about, and this this happened when I was on the vendor side and worked for for very many years on the vendor side. You're you're coming out of a meeting, right? And you you've maybe had a had a group meeting. It could be the product team, right? It could be it could be the you know you've, you're doing a cross team with the marketing folks, and somebody who's not in that meeting comes. You you you, you come out of the meeting. Somebody's not in that meeting, but kind of has. Um, w- well, we'll say some sort of relationship that's indirect to to what you talked about. I said, oh, well, well, you know, what were you guys talking about? And you say generally, well, here's what we're talking about. They said, oh, you know, I've been working on some stuff that's sort of related to that yeah. as part of my development effort. I, I think I think that's very hard to structure online. Just, no, it just means you're incompetent at running a meeting or you're incompetent being a meeting or being a participant in a meeting or managers are incompetent at promoting discussion between their teams that allows that sort of stuff to merge, or the company structure is dysfunctional. Right, but, but you have to, there are very few organizations, right? And I've been in a lot of organizations. I, I've never seen a perfect one, no. right? And no, I don't think not. we'll ever achieve But perfection. betting on random conversations that may or may not happen doesn't suddenly fix those problems. Yeah, it doesn't, but you have to, you have to allow, I think, for uh, for you know, fortuitous circumstances where sure. you know there, you know, and, and 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 I think if you if you close those off, you know, they're they're and, and this is something organizations have struggled with, and they're trying to use technology to to actually cure it. Is that you've got all this knowledge in your organization, right? You've got all this expertise, and it's cross functional. It's in various departments. It's it's. There are pieces of the puzzle, and they never, to your point, Greg, put it together correctly. Hmm. But if we exclude certain types of interaction, we're going to continue to miss those pieces. I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing like that. You know, everybody should be sitting in their cube five days a week. But I do think there is some positive benefit mm-hmm. that can come occasionally from being able to have a conversation. Oh, okay. Good yeah. one, Boomer. Well done, Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> no wonder you're retired. <laughs> Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Palo Alto Networks. 2023 is a year when companies are going to need to do more with less. As businesses grapple with economic uncertainty, it's more critical than ever to consolidate fragmented security and networking solutions to reduce operational complexity and costs. Palo Alto Networks has a new virtual event on its Prisma Sassy, where AI-powered innovation takes center stage. You can watch this event on demand and see how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Hear how the latest innovations in Sassy can help your organization automate costly and complex IT operations with AI-powered digital experience management, connect and secure branch offices and the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and unlock better ROI through consolidation of point solutions with Prisma Sassy. Watch this event on demand at paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. That's paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. And now back to the podcast. 
Well, let's go back to the, I mean, I believe that it doesn't really matter how many days you're back in the office. I think once you've got a significant, a, a, a substantial percentage, anything more than 30% of the time spent out of office yeah. for more than half of the employees, which is what we're talking about, right? More than half employees are only spending two or three days a week in the office. Then zero trust becomes the default connection to technology resources. Now, whether those are SaaS, whether those are on-prem, whether they're in a colo facility, it doesn't matter. And at that point, what's on campus becomes a very different discussion, right? Because for a lot of white-collar jobs, the campus just becomes a way to share an internet connection in the same way that connecting to a home network. Now, there are still certain types of campus network that need specific features, medical hospitals, factories, you know, IoT heavy networks or sensor heavy networks, they're all going to be very whatever. But for a lot of what technology is used for today, and those things I just talked about, they're all emergent networking, right? So except for medical, you know, specific networks where like, you know, the medical one is a particular one because you've got, you know, uh, x-ray machines and and CAT scanners and stuff that are 10-year-old machines that cost millions of dollars and take six months to install, you know, and all that sort of stuff. You're not going to change those things overnight and you need a campus network that can do micro-segmentation, yeah. that can do traffic recognition and then route the traffic into the right um, thing. It can do continuous authentication by saying, that is a CAT scanner, I need to know, and all that sort of stuff, right? There is still a need. I'm not saying that campus networking dies. I'm saying that campus networking as a consistent, coherent whole for everybody suddenly changes. There's a type of campus networking, which is just people come in, connect to the Wi-Fi, or even connect to a wired point even, and it's just giving them access to the internet and the zero trust takes over. And somewhere else, there's a place where there's a a LAN or or a wireless network, which is used for sensors and IoT, and that's a different type of campus. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're talking about that sort of generic carpeted uh, enterprise campus network, which, you know, as distinct, as you said, from those vertical examples, such as, um, healthcare, right. Which is, mm-hmm. which is very different kettle of fish, but I, I would say there, yeah, absolutely. Those are becoming more and more, I don't want to say undifferentiated, but you get the point, right. They're becoming yeah. very commonplace. Absolutely. Yep. You don't want to, you don't need high value, you know, $3,000 a port campus networking with security features and threat analysis, threat detection and stuff when that's all in your zero trust client, basically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You just want to straight out connect to the internet as if they're at home, plug in, off you go, zero trust client comes out, connected to the network, policies are the same, whether you're at home, in a coffee shop, on a plane, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. And if the commercial real estate news is accurate, we're going to see that trend continue to accelerate, right? Where organizations are going to look at making their environments a lot more common and um I, I suppose vanilla, right? When using the technologies well, you described. So yeah. is this what bad I think news is then for the, you know, particularly the the wireless access vendors? Does, is this going to essentially cripple their market or are we going to build out the same size and capacity networks even though uh, these campuses are getting smaller? Yeah, there's two ways to look at. It limits their their ability to push for premium value, in other words, you know, higher margins. I, I think, you know, it 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 certainly makes it harder for them to find, I'm sure they'll try, right? They'll try to find areas <laughs> of differentiation, et cetera, but it's going to make it harder and harder to defend that. I would agree. Yeah. Okay. So I think we we sort of come to the point that the camp there's a tension between zero trust and the campus 
Let's move on to geopolitics and supply chain. We talked a bit about COVID in you know the and how the campus has changed in the COVID era, post-COVID era. We've seen a lot of change with China. We've seen the tensions. We've seen manufacturing and assembly move around. The supply chain obviously was massively disrupted during COVID. Now it's stabilizing, but there's still supply chain problems. And mm -hmm. geopolitics is really the actor here, is really the key actor. If it's not environment, I think actually climate change may disrupt the supply chain in the future, but we're not there yet. Is this something that you see continuing and are customers caring about it? I don't know whether customers, all customers care about it, but it's definitely something that I think um, is reshaping the industry, right? We've, we just saw news that um, Huawei uh, through, um, through its ecosystem in China, right? The PRC has developed a seven nan nanometer process for, right. um, for, for the chip for their smartphones. There's a suspicion, which is probably well-founded, among Western vendors of networking infrastructure that Huawei has already built out an ecosystem that addresses, if not all, um, areas of, you know, the value chain from chip making to uh, to chip design, to chip manufacturing, to, you know, all the various ASICs as well as CPUs, et cetera, that they're well on their way. Right. And and this is happening over in, over in China and they've had to do it. It's one of the, uh, and this is where we're, we're getting into, an, I guess, a nice controversial area, which is probably a good thing. When you put in policies that exclude or prevent a certain area of the world or country from from buying technology, you 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 have to assume that they're going to try to do it themselves because they have no other option, right? right. Yeah. And and this is this is exactly what is what is happening over there. But unfortunately, Greg, as you say, it's leading to really, uh, you know, the we've heard. Obviously, from from literature, the tale of two cities. Now you got a tale of two worlds, really, mm. where you know the the Chinese market is becoming PRC market is becoming divorced from the rest of the world. Yeah, and and it it, it of course vendors are already in US. I, I think I think you you mentioned this previously. A lot of the money is already pulling out of China, Western money pulling out of China. Well, mm. the vendors are too, to a large extent. Um, yeah. and and I think this is going to continue, and it, it's definitely something to watch. Maybe this is the customer aspect. If you're a customer in the UK or a customer in the US or a customer in the rest of the Western world, mm. is you should probably consider, you know, to to what extent does my vendor or has my vendor in the past derived a significant share of of revenue and profitability from the PRC and related countries? And, yeah. you know, will that will that affect their ability to continue to pursue the roadmap? Maybe in that light you should consider it, but they probably won't have to worry about it too much yeah. otherwise yeah my sense is that most of the vendors are well into planning to exit china yep. they're not talking about it and they're hoping nobody will ask about it because <laughs> nobody wants to offend the chinese government and suddenly find themselves you know suffering some sort of negative consequences before they're ready for it in order that they but, want to uh, anger shareholders or wall street who will punish them severely for exiting a very lucrative market like yeah, and you can see Wall Street's paying attention to it, right? On, I notice on a lot of the reports, they are calling out, you know, Vendor X gets 20 to 25% of their revenue from China, right? Yeah, on, Apple, yeah. Apple is a fifth Apple's, of their revenue is in China, yep. Yeah. yeah, Apple's the main one, but that's because they sell so much of their, like the iPhone is a very popular product in China. But, you know, I think to a lesser extent, um, China has very much promoted for its IT technology, its enterprise technology, has very much promoted its homegrown vendors for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. 
And the position of companies like Dell and HPE and Cisco selling products into China has been winding down for a substantial period of time in terms of sales. So I don't believe the sales is our thing. What I, I do believe is that manufacturing and assembly is and needs to be out of China in the event that some sort of geopolitical issue comes up. And, you know, they're, 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 and I think that that process is well underway. Yeah, I'll give you a great example of in in the case of a Huawei strategy in China that I found interesting why they pursued it. They they're really they're they're pushing something um, uh, that's basically a converged data center network that includes your storage network, your HPC network. Because remember, in China, there's a there's a disproportionate amount of HPC, mm-hmm. and then your your general purpose you know data data center network. Um, and they're they're pushing all of that on on a kind of Ethernet IP stack, um, mm. right? Uh, TCP for some customers, and and you know what's happening uh, in in the evolution of Ethernet um, for for some other more demanding use cases. But they're they're doing that almost as a defensive measure because they feel that well, Ethernet is going to continue will continue to be available to us, mm-hmm. whereas some of these other technologies, InfiniBand and um, you know uh, what's happening with storage storage networking, right? Um, they're, they're they're saying that may get closed off to us. So you can see the actions over there are being are being driven heavily by geopolitical yeah. considerations right now. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. China can make China has the machinery and the skills to operate um, non leading edge silicon fabs. Yep. Right? Uh, they have the machinery. They've been using it like twenty nanometer, thirty nanometer. All that stuff, 300 millimeter wafers, um, they have all the machinery to do that today. And I think eventually they'll, but there is, you can reasonably make questions that the new, this new phone that came out, there are fair questions about whether Huawei can manufacture a seven nanometer chip at scale. It can manufacture some of them, but can it do them to the point where it's profitable, that they can produce them at, at sufficient volume and sufficient yield to do that? So is this a demonstration sort of, thumbing their nose at the West, or is this actually a, a business is a little unclear. I think the calculation is that, that the, you know, the yield percentage is not great at seven nanometers. It's actually you know very low percentage, relatively yeah. speaking. So, and, and, and yeah, it looks like they're eating a lot of that right now, right? It's yeah. almost like a so, loss leader. Yeah. But can they iterate, can they solve those problems without Western support? Well, we don't know. I don't think it, I can't make a statement about that. They've certainly got enough people. They've got entire university campuses devoted to producing graduates in manufacturing chips, right? They've got all the raw materials that they need, and they've got a lot of. They ordered a lot of machines before the sanctions came into effect, and those machine that machinery is still being delivered. The sanctions will take a long time. I I, uh, I read a fascinating article on that in the Wall Street Journal a little while ago, where they were saying that these Chinese companies are offering like everything from houses to you know yachts and a whole bunch of other things to get certain um, silicon skill sets into China, right, from other parts of the world. So They, they recruit no, them heavily from Taiwan, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> they speak Chinese quite often. So. But some of the perks are absolutely ridiculous, right? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think eventually that will stop. I think the, you know, the sanctions will extend to that. But I do feel that supply chain will be something that, is going to be dominating our discussion in the years ahead, which is not something that's dominated the discussion over the last two decades. 
Yeah, no, I, I think supply chain, um, you know, and you're right. It's been, the assumption was that, you know, initially vendors, when they were giving their calls and when we talked to them back at, when I was at IDC, they say, no, this is something that we're going to get through in the next 12 months. And then those 12 months turned into 24 months. And to your point, Greg, it's still going on, right? And we don't know, we don't know what the next chapter in, you know, as you said, what's happening with the environment, um, mm. uh, what's happening with, you know, will there be uh, another plague? God knows, you know, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> who knows? It could happen. Um, sometimes people raise the issue of rare earth elements. Um, yep. Sometimes. Um, I have a different opinion to most people because I've been tracking this for quite a long time. Um, China has an outsized position in rare earth elements today because they've been willing to not only mine them, but also to process them. It's yes. not the mining of rare earth elements that's the problem, it's the reprocessing, which results in, uh, they use extremely toxic chemicals and you end up with tailing ponds with the world's worst environmentally damaging. And the world just went, China, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to take the environmental consequences of taking in that industry and doing it at a price point, then you go right ahead and we'll just buy them from you. But do you know the country that's got the most rare earth elements in the ground right now? It's Australia. Yep. It's yep. got all of them, but yep. nobody wants to mine them because China will do it cheaper and is happily accept the consequences of the 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 you know the the, the toxicity and the tailings dumps and and the you know all that stuff that goes with it. Yeah, so, there's um, no question. Yeah, Australia has uh, has a tremendous wealth of rare earth elements and other minerals and metals that are that are relevant to the digital economy. And then you're you're right. You you can see cases in the U.S. and and here where I am in Canada where projects have been stopped because nobody wants to have the processing and refinery and, and refinement going on on their, on their mm -hmm. soil or in their communities, right? The, the, as you say, the water pollution that comes from this, and uh, it's not just doesn't stop there. It can be um, absolutely mm -hmm. disastrous for the environment. And that's has no question. You're, you're bang on. That's been the, that's, that's been the restriction on this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, I believe the press coverage around that has been a beat up, you know, uh, that hasn't been well researched by most of the press. Um, but what will happen is, of course, where there's where there's muck, there's money, yep. and so once the, there's money to be made from rare earth elements, then eventually the pressure will come on, and then the mining will start, and the processing will start, and the world will, you know, it, capitalism will do its job. You know, once there's a viable market with sufficient money, it will it it will happen. We'll yeah, and it looks like happen in in lower income countries. Like the, this is a serious issue in the Congo, um, where they're extracting rare earth metals and not mm. doing anything about the environmental impact or the human impact on uh, workers who are underpaid, uh, working in horrible conditions, and all that. So the, the, you're, you're bang on, Drew. I think it's a yeah. it's a NIMBY thing where you know you're seeing it happen in parts of it. So that's why I think Africa. There's so much contention in Africa among the big powers right now. Right. This mm. is it's one of the narrative threads behind that and and we see it happening to a lesser extent in, in south america too yep. yep yeah hopefully they do it in australia in the central desert where nobody goes and nobody's <laughs> gonna you'd think that but i you know who knows whatever i want i want to move on to the the next topic we've got here brad which is that what i sometimes called the illities observability visibility you know monitoring all that type of stuff um i think this is my thesis is that this is the most important trend that's actually come out of software-defined networking. We've got configurability, the ability to change, how rapidly change the configuration of systems. Look at containers, right? How quickly can you change the configuration and operational environment? Reliability has changed, visibility. We now actually know what's happening in the network for the first time ever mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And observability takes that up to the next level. 
are you and would you argue with that? What's your views on that? No, I wouldn't. In fact, I think that um, we can see that I, I would totally agree, right? And SDN is one of those things. And and I remember um, Martin Casado is now a VC, but of course you remember him from Nasira and from VMware. Mm. He, he said, you know, we're so bad at naming things in this industry. So we call it software-defined networking, but really it's more developer-defined and it's it's the software really taking really really leading the charge here through what developers need right and and all the infrastructure has to get aligned with that but to your point one of the one of the results of that is you you do need much better observability you do need more mm-hmm. proactive approaches to monitoring right and it needs to be not just you know, obviously the day 2 takes takes real precedence in those scenarios right so the, i i would agree it's been the most important aspect it was a little slow i think networking folks were a little slow to realize the value of it but now they mm-hmm. i think there's greater appreciation for it um mm-hmm. and and you know what it not only what it does for their organizations but what it does for them right as as professionals i think there's a greater appreciation of it now mm-hmm. and now with things like you know Celium and ebpf we're taking networking right into the kernel right into you know where um where traffic can be managed at a very granular level with the right policies. And Drew's going to say, yes, but you said the right policies again. And he's, he's right. Uh, and, but, you know, there, there, there's a lot of interesting security use cases there. But, you know, where does it go when you go right right into the kernel? And and I think these are huge advances, by the way. But but where do we go beyond that? You've gone to the kernel. Um, I, 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 I No question that observability is the I, I think the biggest use case in that world, if you, if you t- uh, talk to talk to some of the organizations and and customers who are who are working with that technology, right, in containerized environments and Kubernetes and using eBPF, eBPF has become the data plane now for I think almost all the major cloud environments, their most sophisticated um, environments, and it's extending to many um, mm. many enterprises and edge use cases as well. You know, it's become the not only the uh, the CNI, but it's it's it goes all the way up to the application layer, right? Yeah, because I remember layer. talking to the Viptela guys about SD WAN, and they were basically saying that in the early days of the product, the people bought SD WAN, the Viptela SD WAN. Uh, you know, this is a TIF and the, and mm-hmm. a TIF Khan and and so forth, and they were saying that the thing that kept customers on side was the visibility. It was the software tooling that kept the configurations, did the asset management, updated the code, and then they could look at it and see how much traffic was flowing per application, not, you know, n- not bits on an interface type thing, right? Yeah. And they, I remember this is this is a long time ago. This is almost fifteen years ago now, and they said that to me, and that was what sort of what opened my eyes to software defined as a as a monitoring, like really. The, the short-term win you get out of deploying SD-WAN or a software-defined data center or even a software-defined campus, right, is the visibility and the backup, the asset management, you know, all that stuff. It's not the all the other stuff that you get, I mean, fine, overlays, yes, and you get blah, 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 or whatever, but it's that's not actually what changes the day two and all that sort of stuff. It's the ability to know what's going on in the network instead of having to reach out over an SSH and type a bunch of yeah. arcane, you know, put your fingers down to bloody little stumps with a series of arcane commands. Right. I, I totally agree. And by the way, it's the same story I heard 
you you remember this company well. It's now part of VMware. But the same story I heard from customers of Avi Networks in the early days. Mm. They said, yeah. "What I get with this relative to you know old school um, load balancers is I get tremendous observability for for the day two issues that arise on the network." Right. Yeah. And I can yeah. see the configuration. I can change the configuration. Yep. I don't have to go on a web page, do a something and try and configure a VIP and then go somewhere else to configure the server pool and blah, 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 blah. Yep. Right. It was literally so, so just Brad, what's what's changed then? Because we've always had monitoring. Uh, is there something new that we're doing that has transformed it into visibility or observability? I think the tooling, the tooling became a lot better. And, you know, as Greg said, it, we, we started to move beyond uh, you know, some of the old school networking turns, which are very static, right? Right. And it's more more real time, more flow based. I think real time is a huge, a huge element in all of this, right? And it's okay. become things like INT in the data center and the cloud data center. Uh the Avi stuff is is very the much real time. Network telemetry is INT. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. yep. Uh so it's partly the the more data faster as opposed to I'm pulling every five minutes. Exactly. And yeah, and 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 you have to you don't know something's happened with 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 this stuff you you can see right away right you can see something's happened with some of the old tools that were static and and push oriented you were you were you know to Greg's point you were checking you were checking on a periodic basis to see what's going on um, you know now with some of these tools you it's a lot more proactive right and and I think that's part of the bigger trend which which we don't see is this is an aspect of the network gaining more intelligence, right? And one of the things that I think we always grapple with in the industry is that users, Greg picks a great example in terms of observability and monitoring. Customers love this part of the network gaining intelligence. They're not yet willing to trust the network with you know, self-driving features, but for things like observability and monitoring, this is this is something that they absolutely welcome, and it's an aspect of this network intelligence where it's delivered real value and it's been received warmly by the customers. Yeah. I I think you know when you talk about you know and many vendors have talked about the self driving network um, in in a lot of different places in the network. Uh, you know when you talk to customers, they say, well, you know, how do I know it's not going to drive into a wall? You know, and it's 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 a valid concern. It but is a valid I think, concern. Yeah. But it, but it, but I think for monitoring and observability, but you don't buy a car and say, "But what if it drives into?" The, sorry, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just a little tired of that argument in the sense, you know, that what if it doesn't? And it's like saying, "Yeah, well, you know, riding a bicycle, you know, but upgrading to a car, but what happens if it rides into a wall?" You know. It's the same metaphor. It's a, it's a, it's, it's not a viable argument in my opinion. No, I know. Because, I, I understand, but you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with people and, and their own experience. And this is, this is, it's part of the, it's part of the shock of change, right? I mean, I, I totally agree. I think we're going to get there. There are more and more common scenarios that will just trust the, uh, the intelligent automation to do the right thing. And, and, mm -hmm. and I think we're on that, we're on that road and that continuum, but, you know, people are conditioned by their own experience and and it takes them a yeah. while to get used to this stuff. Yeah. In yeah. this way, I feel like SD-WAN has kind of been one of the most transformative technologies I feel like I've seen in that it, it kind of actually worked like people said it did, which isn't usually the case with brand new technologies right. in that. And, and people were able to trust, yes, I am going to let this um, gateway decide to fail over to the secondary link because the traffic 
uh, quality has degraded to a point on my primary link that I this application based on my policies needs to switch over. And it worked. And I think, yeah, yeah that the fact that it worked as promised was kind of revolutionary. Yeah. And it, it definitely was after, as you said, so many fitful previous <laughs> cases. Right. Lots, of, lots of promises. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, it was, I think it was a great thing for the industry overall, great thing for customers for obvious reasons, as you said, and a good thing for the industry too, because it, it, it lent a new credibility, not only the vendors, but to this, to this move along the software-based continuum, right? I think software automation. Yep. Yep. And also the observability, the visibility, telemetry, the the data people were getting in real time from their SD-WAN systems was uh, relevatory. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it was a, it was a huge march forward, and a lot has come from that, right? And you know, I guess what we're seeing is, um, as we talked about on the last episode, now people are saying, "What's next?" Because we need <laughs> right, yes, need yeah, episode one for the AI conversation. Yes, we're, yeah. we're, addicted to the, <laughs> we're addicted to the sales that the initial SD WAN turned into SASE, turned into SSE, <laughs> linked, and linked security to the network, and pulled through a whole bunch of spending. That comes back to my thesis, which again we talked about in the in the previous in part one, was that we're in a period of stagnation. SD WAN, like in the WAN, we have the SD WAN, SASE, SSE, zero trust, and I, I think I see them as four four steps. You start with SD WAN, you move to SASE, you then go. I need SSE. Hang on, I don't need SSE. What I need is zero trust, right? In in that is in the campus. We've seen the software defined campus obviously emerge. We now have the Wi Fi and the wireless is very tightly integrated. The operational problems around the campus are being addressed through the use of AI tools. Cisco's not there yet, but Juniper very much is. Uh, Extreme is coming up with much better operational tools. Um, you know, all the other wireless vendors are all seeing it's an operational problem. We've got to get, you know, illities around the wireless to solve that in the campus. But None of the, the the days of the wireless campus are gone. They they're all wide and wireless together. One campus, one solution, one problem. And the same thing happening in the data center, right? So we're seeing a lot of stabilization. A lot of the on-premises infrastructure is stabilizing. For that matter, even off-premises, storage is storage. It's it's you know it's whatever it is. And uh, the only real change in technology at the moment is this AI Ethernet. Um, and, and AI generally, this use of, you know, dedicated processes, TPUs, or, you know, the, the AI GPU to do the processing, this offloading is another trend, but that doesn't change technology at scale. It changes points of it, right? So if yep. you deploy an AI, t- AI GPU or an AI TPU just to do the AI processing, that doesn't change the rest of your infrastructure. It doesn't generate a, a full refresh cycle like the campus is going through. No, yeah, you're right. And of course, that came from a commercial consideration initially in the cloud, right? Where, you know, they were looking at, um, at Smart NICs and, you know, the DPU technologies and Amazon first, of course, um, was saying, okay, I'm making money in the cloud from instances running uh, running here, you know, cloud instances, customer instances running here. But, you know, I've got all this other stuff that needs to be there. Don't get me wrong, but it's getting in the way of the revenue generating workloads, the business workloads. And, and it, 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 but, but I'm not saying it's only relevant to them. A lot of other organizations said, well, I could use that too, right? Why am I, you know, even on premises, if you're running apps on premises, you're saying I could use a greater amount of efficiency and I could use the benefits of offload. 
But um, it originally, it kind of came from an economic need, but it was a like like so many things, it's a technology mm. solution that came from economic need or economic mm. desire, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think this idea of the offload the, and interestingly, the deprecation of the CPU as the core component has caused Intel to have a deep level of pain as it has to realize that its core product or its core differentiator, its leadership around the CPU is being undermined by the GPU, the TPU and the DPU. And the same thing is happening to AMD to a lesser extent. Of course, the rise of ARM. One of the one of the interesting things, and this isn't a thought I haven't formed up very well, is ARM CPUs. If you consider that if ARM CPUs continue to evolve to the point where they can run substantial workloads, do you really need an Intel processor consuming 200, 400, 600 watts to run and yet you're only running it at 10% capacity because 50 VMs doesn't use a lot of CPU. Um, could you start running them with ARM CPUs and reduce your power footprint by 60 to 80%? Because yeah. at the end of the day, your blast radius is the problem. Like I was talking to somebody from a reseller recently, and he said, I've got a server that I can buy pretty standard off the shelf. He said, I can run 400 VMs on it, no problem. But if I do, the whole company goes down. So now we have to run 10 servers with 40 VMs on each. Well, that's a a use case for ARM CPUs to reduce the power consumption and change the the the, the value proposition and the cost of an on-premise data center. And especially if you start to use DPUs for offloading, the ARM CPU can be doing the compute and the DPU can be doing like offloading the last of the functions, you know, between the GPU and the DPU, the, the ARM CPU is actually a viable solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been shocking to, in, in, in retrospect, if you think about, you know, the, the diminution of Intel, right, as a company, it it reminds me of the old. It happened on so many different fronts, right? The the uh, from the Apple business to what's happened in the data center, right, and you know the cloud, and now of course with AI, and and you can see this continually happening. They're having, uh, you know, people who are companies that were regarded as lilliputians now becoming major competitors, them and overtaking them in many areas. And you're right, ARM has a significant opportunity. But what's happening? Intel reminds me of the old quote, the old Hemingway quote where you know the guy who's asked you know how did you go bankrupt and said little by little then all at once right <laughs> it's exactly what's happened to intel it's, it's when when you look at it over the scope you think holy how you know how did a giant get to get to the situation it finds itself in today but it was little by little and then you know all of this stuff accumulates yeah yeah i think cisco's got a similar problem in that, uh, like IBM and Intel before it, they have been using financial engineering to get the financial results that shareholders want to produce profits. To so they've been raising prices, reducing headcount, moving money around, selling off poor property portfolios. Um, and I think Cisco could be, unless it does something, it could be in a similar situation where its share price is largely stagnant over a ten-year period. Its ability to transition to software operated infrastructure isn't market leading. It's doing fine, but it's not tearing up the market. Um, take, for example, look at HP GreenLake and a full embracing of software operated infrastructure and cloud, you know, on-premise cloud infrastructures um, is, is, is extraordinary considering the company was really struggling just three or four years ago. Um, so, you know, there there is a bunch of things happening in that space where I think a lot of the leaders are going through are going to go through some pain in the near future. 
Yeah, it does feel like a time, uh, I heard somebody refer to it as a plastic time where change is not only happening, but it's it's um, it's likely to happen on a significant scale. And I think that carries over. It's happening, un- unfortunately, on all fronts, right? May you live in interesting times. These are interesting times. They're interesting times yeah. geopolitically. They're interesting times in the tech industry. Yeah. Well, look at Palo Alto Networks, which is now a $75 billion company. Now, admittedly, that's a high multiple valuation. It's growing rapidly. It's moving into new markets. It's managed to turn its application firewall into, you know, a zero-trust behemoth with an SD-WAN and SASE and SSE strategy. And even Fortinet is now valued at $55 billion. Those companies are now um, growing faster than Cisco by orders of magnitude and chunking out their business in the security, like Cisco's security business is almost zero growth, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And yet these companies are doing way better. Look at Arista growing gangbusters, admittedly, as we talked about in part one, through a dependence on specific number of customers and our concerns, but Arista is still growing very strongly in the enterprise markets. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've seen um, Juniper after after some early misfires on some of their Earlier acquisitions, they've done a much better job, right? Certainly uh, with Mist, and and they're they're finding some growth and eking out some growth as well. Um, so you know, it is a it's challenging for. And you mentioned Extreme, right? Extreme for so long was 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 going through a really difficult transition, but um, certainly in terms of their stock price and uh, and the way they're evolving their 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 portfolio, I think uh, I think even there. You know, a much smaller player, yeah. of course, but they're in a better course right now. Very small, yeah. But they did pick up the remnants of Brocade and a bunch of other companies that went under Avaya and so forth yep. um, at a very cheap price. And they picked up those customers and then they did their best to churn them into this extreme product family. Yeah, they worked and they worked They worked very hard at that. Um, hmm. You know, I, I know at times probably they even had doubts about how it would all turn out, but uh, but they seem to be on on more solid ground now. Yeah. Yeah. It, and that's a surprising turnaround because in the past, Cisco would have not let them, you know, the Cisco of 15 years ago would not have given them the opportunity to do that growth. And my sense is that Cisco doesn't know how to compete against them now and is happy not to, to some extent they've decided to. Oh yeah. Um, it's, it's shocking. Uh, um, if you think back to the Cisco of relatively, well, I guess it's ancient lore now, right? The way they, they, they dealt with Cabletron. It was it was merciless, right back in the day. But that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's you're right. Cisco's. Um, I don't know if we want to say that. You know, maybe we do, right? If we want to be, but that sort of killer instinct that they had back then isn't isn't uh, isn't as much in evidence today. No question. Yeah, yeah. It's just interesting, and then but the, the company's doing fine. It's you know it's growing revenue slowly, profitability. It's bringing its profitability back up to sixty five percent, but its competitors are doing are growing. And it's not dominating the market like it used to. It's still a dominant player, but uh, you know there and and Intel was dominating the market until it wasn't. Yeah. And the same with IBM, right? So, like you say, it happened slowly, and then it happened all at once. <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's the stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess we've got you know, you go back far enough, you can see many examples of that, right? When from digital equipment and compact sure. and yeah, all sorts of them. Yeah. So one last topic. Uh, this one's a little bit more controversial, perhaps, than most. We saw um, 5G come onto the market about four or five years ago in a blast of marketing dollars and hype and 
unspecific apparently it was going to make my personal life better and <laughs> <laughs> you know i felt like i was being sold shinier now because of 5g that's right it felt like it was avon calling for a long time there do you have a take on that you know i i'm gonna i don't know whether this will be controversial but um i'm gonna say the problem is is more is not the technology the problem is the uh those offering the technology. Um, mm. I, I think telcos have struggled for a long time. And this goes back time immemorial. How long have they said, we want to be more than the pipe? And then when they have the yeah. chance to be more than the pipe, they can't do it, right? And it, it, I, I looked at, I remember talking to a lot of folks about IoT use cases across a range of verticals. And they said, you know, there's a lot of customers from agriculture to a lot of um, uh, factory mm factory use cases and through to a whole bunch of other things they said uh you know you talked about 5g and they'd say no i can't you know uh, what what i want is reliable data delivery i don't necessarily need a massive amount of bandwidth and i definitely don't want to pay what what their arpu based model is going to charge me hmm. and and i i just think they they are not particularly good and it's if you you might say well how come they couldn't change but you know they 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 have not been able to pivot with any of the any of the things that have happened in the marketplace in terms of really understanding the customer in terms of changing their business model to accommodate new requirements in the marketplace it's been a it's been the fate of the telco to 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 really fail to adapt to, to mm -hmm. changing circumstances and I don't think 5G on its own is a bad technology. We, we, we've seen, you know, I'm sure you've seen some of this. We've seen some private 5G get developed in, in certain areas, but that's not the same as being offered publicly by a telco, right, as a service, no, as a telco service. No. And they just haven't been able to, they, they just haven't been able to adapt and sell it effectively. And I, I don't know if they can get out of their own way. That's mm. that's the way I feel. I mean, I know that's controversial. I hope we don't have too many telco <laughs> listeners right now. <laughs> Well, I think my view doesn't is a bit more aggressive, but uh, my view was is that five G uh, was a wholly internal thing. So it allowed new spectrum, new technologies, but the most important one was that it moved them away from physical appliances to software appliances. So you moved away from a, you know, there was a box at the top that did the radio signals and then took the analog signal and then passed it down. Then there was another box that took the digital signal and decoded the data, which then passed it on to a 3G PPB gateway, and, right. you know, and so on and so forth. And 5G was really about, you know, having a software-defined radio at the top and then stripping the packets out at the first step. And then everything from there back was just software. So instead of having gateways on custom appliances that Nokia would ship and, you know, checkpoint boxes running arcane software from wherever. It was really about an overhaul saying, we need to get away from the hardware to the software. And they said, okay, but what we're going to do is we're going to charge customers for the privilege of overhauling our networks. And so they went out and spent billions of dollars trying to convince customers that an upgrade to 5G would be something they'd pay extra for. And people just went, no. Nah. You know what I mean? Which comes back to your point is telcos just can't get out of the way. They think that every upgrade of the network should be paid for by the customer instead yeah, of going, and, yeah. And they did a poor job to, I mean, they they kind of moved from, as we know, VNFs to CNFs and they were going to go big into containers and, and so forth. But I talked to a lot of the telcos about this and, and they said, um, we didn't realize the implications of moving to you know, containerized infrastructure, software infrastructure. Mm. We didn't realize that, you know, you'd need all these things like CNI and 
you know, service meshes and so forth. And I was kind of shocked by that. I said, how, how could you not know that? You're you know? a technology company. <laughs> Don't you know anything about technology? You know, it's like, um, and I think the other challenge that they've had around 5G was that they were so committed to this idea of the customer pays that they started chasing down rabbit holes like private 5G, waste of time. There's a few yep. use cases for it, but it's not a scaled up use case, right? They've got uh, network slicing. Right? They just assumed that everybody would want to buy a private network. Well, the point is, is that if I buy a private network, I'm limited to a single telco. If I'm, you know, a smart connected car maker, I am not going to sign up with every telco in the world to get a network slice so I can get guaranteed traffic. I'll just work out a way to run it over the top. Yep. So, you know, I'll just buy mobile connectivity en masse for cars in each country and that's it. I'm not going to buy a slice. I don't I don't understand the sort of thinking that they got with the value-added services that they proposed and they just ran off with it and, and, and got lost. They started believing their own own bollocks basically yeah and, they, and it's you're right it's a, the, on the mobile side you've just you've just explained how they kind of really did themselves a lot of self-harm and, and i think the same thing if you look at what's happened now with um hybrid environments and workloads in cloud etc uh you know they did the same thing with this you're going to use us for your mpls you know hmm. across the board and that's why I mean, among, among many reasons, it's why MPLS. After many, many years, let's give it let's give it its mm. due. But um, it's uh, it's slowly um, sunsetting, right? And telcos are suffering on that front too. Well, one thing that they finally got right, which I've just started to realize recently, is that they're out there convincing customers to buy SD WAN from them. And you're That's now seeing Crick. <laughs> yeah. This idea of a many. So what they and I think what they're doing is they're going out to all of their customers who've got MPL services and saying, "We need to upgrade you to SD WAN, but we need you need us to manage it for you." So I'm thinking of companies like Anuta Networks who can manage multi-vendor networks, right? So okay, they don't just do automation; they do orchestration and then they analyze and then they remediate. So if you had a managed service provider, you can buy a tool like Anuta to go in there and do all of that. Now you can lay that over the top of your SD WAN. So if you wanted to manage Cisco's SD-WAN and Palo SD-WAN and offer both to your customers and let them choose which one that they want because some of them want SASE and some want SSE and, you know, whatever, then you start to have MSPs using tools over the top like Anuta Networks, right? So that is an interesting turn of events because I, it don't, wouldn't surprise me to think that most customers have been habituated to not running their WAN because dealing with telcos is so painful that I just don't want I don't want to bring the SD-WAN back on-prem, but everybody should be bringing their WAN back on-prem because it should be integrated with their campus. Um, so there's a tension going to happen there. And I would suggest to you that MSPs see the campus as a potential growth market. And maybe, you know, maybe that's the future. Maybe they actually provide those sorts of things like zero trust campus WAN as a managed service, and maybe they can do it better than everybody else. I mean, I can't believe I'm actually saying that, and I don't think it's actually true, but, you know. <laughs> you know but yeah, you're, you're right. There's, But that's another shift they, they haven't yet made. I think you're right. There's that managed services is the way they should go, and, and the, that's a great example of a managed service that they could provide. Hmm. It's good for them, and it's good for the customer, but but they seem to really struggle with that shift, right? It's just hmm. it's just something that's – there's a there's something in the DNA or – in the water <laughs> somewhere. But... <laughs> Based on what I hear from people is that they, yeah, it's the service part that they just don't do very well at. You, yep. Some of yep. these are very high touch, very intense engagements. If you're talking about like a managed security service, 
um, you need to do a lot of handholding and they, they just don't seem to be great at that. Right. I guess they're still thinking in the old model, which is, yes, we have a lot of front, uh, uh, front end CapEx spending that we do for infrastructure. And then we just turn on the service and we collect, you know, basically how I get the subscription checks from there, but this is right. different, right? If you're doing service, yeah. it's a continuous engagement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And also you have to have large numbers of professional services teams operating at an efficiency level that makes a profit and professional services is very hard to make profits from. Yep. And they're not skilled at that at all. They're much more into, you have a small team of experts that you pay badly and then you go and deploy something and then you squeeze it for everything you can get out of it for 20 years. And there's a real cultural difference that has to be overcome. Yeah. Mm. When, when you used to go to telco offices back in the day when I was on the vendor side, you'd see all these, you'd go into the engineering room and you'd see all these boxes piled up in the corner, right? So um, <laughs> efficiency's always been a problem. But sometimes those boxes would never get open. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I worked for some telcos early in my career and then never worked for them again. It was just yeah. it was just a an unhappy place and uh, you know, so much despair and pointlessness going on. So so you would basically go with the point that 5G doesn't really matter as far as the consumers and it's just a way to access the public WAN or, the, or what I call the internet is the public WAN. Yeah, we've seen some, you know, we've seen some backhaul cases, but yeah, you're right. It's 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 um, it's definitely underperformed, right? I mean, if you mm. think about all the hype we've had, uh, it's it just hasn't come close to to. I've had so to, much of my life wasted in five G briefings and stuff, but I think the idea of you know the the components of this, like the RIC and the RAN inside it, are revolutionary yeah. internally, right? That transition away from hardware operated infrastructure to software infrastructure has been absolutely transformational to the companies that have adopted it. Um, but the telcos still, as you say, still haven't realized or quite gotten onto the idea of, oh, you mean that I can just turn that off and turn that on and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I don't, nothing's static. It's all flexible. And maybe, you know, that was the first, I mean, again, you know, this is wishful thinking at least, you know, but, but maybe that the fact that they were able to get that far, but weren't able to, you know, turn the corner, it gives them a bit of hope, generational hope as they as they transition, right? But but it's still a tremendous amount of work to work 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 to do um, as business think, entities. Yeah. Here's the thing for you. I think telcos actually got a problem because everybody's too old. Like there's no fresh blood inside of the telcos. Yeah, and, and I wonder so how many they're... boomers inside of those organizations who are in their last five to ten years that they just can't refresh themselves. Yeah, and I used to I used to you know as somebody who's you know, a little older, I can say this. Uh, but I remember when I spoke about what was happening with, you know, software and networking, whether you want to call SDN or whether you want to call it, um, you know, software-based network intelligence or whatever you want to call it. But you would just see, you know, if you could read bubbles over people's heads, um, you know, there were some of the older networkers in the audience who were thinking, thinking about all this change that they would have to go through. And they were thinking one more hardware life cycle and I'm out of here. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've retired. So you've seen your last hardware cycle. Um, have you got <laughs> yeah. any advice for people out there at this point, now that you're exited from the analysis business? I think it's really, you know, this is more a personal thing, but I think oh. it's, I think it's really important for everybody to, you know, we, we, we have our various, we kind of really compartmentalize our lives, right? We have our, 
we have our professional self and we have our personal self. And it's really important not to forget one at the expense of the other, because mm. at a certain point, if you're lucky, uh, you know, and you, and you don't die on the job, I don't wish that on anybody, but mm. if you don't die on the job, you're going to have a retirement year. And it's really important to cultivate something in your professional life that's going to keep you engaged beyond, beyond when you, um, as David Lee Roth would say, throw in the shoes. Uh, so that's, it's, it's really important to do that. And I see so many people who haven't done that. And it's, um, it, 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 I feel bad for, I feel bad whenever I see that. Cause you know, it's a person who's lost, right? They've kind of, mm. all of their identity was tied up in, in, in what they did professionally. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's tough. And I know that's probably true for a few folks out there and they're thinking about retirement with fear and trepidation, but there's still time. If you haven't retired, there's still time to, to, to make sure you have, um, you feel purpose in your personal life as you, as you move on. Yeah. Mm. Don't nice. give up. Keep fighting basically. Yep. Yeah. yeah but make sure you get, make sure you live your life. Like I, I think my perspective on that is don't, um, live to work, work to live. Yeah. So yeah. try and try and find that, you know. I I remember there was a gentleman at a place of under where he was retiring and uh, he seemed kind of ambivalent about it. You know, there, there was, there was this, all the people were kind of clapping him off his last day of work. And, uh, you know, he looked kind of sad. He said, well, you know, I'm kind of sad. And there's another guy who is barely talked. You know, he's one of those engineers who barely said a word. And he said to him, the guy's name is Glenn. He said, Glenn, he said, uh, don't worry about it. He said, nobody on their deathbed says they wish they spent more time in the office. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have a unique career experience in that I've joined and left over 100 companies. I did a count once and it was just, I was freelancing. I was a reseller. I worked in a reseller and I went into companies and out of companies on extended stays, like months or years at a time. I just kept moving and Sometimes I'd come in on a week. Sometimes I'd come in for six weeks. Sometimes I'd come in for six months. And I've moved through a lot of companies. And each time you leave, you actually grieve for that because you've spent so much effort yeah. forging relationships. And and if you've been somewhere for a long time, actually, as you say, retirement actually is a there – there is a little death, I think, that happens. That, yep. that, that piece of your life is dead and you're now going into it. So I think it, it is always a moment for, you know, where you get a bit frightened and a bit ambivalent because – you know, what are you going to do with your time? <laughs> yeah. And I, I could tell you, I would go through a lot of golf clubs if I played golf. I'm not a golfer, right? So <laughs> I, I just, I get frustrated playing that game. So, you know, it's important to, it's important to find some way to, to stay engaged. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Well, Brad, thanks so much for joining us and taking the time to do this rather epic two-part two heavy networking where we talk about the future of networking and conduct your exit interview. Congratulations on making it out alive. Um, yeah, thank can... you. Thank you. And I, and I know uh, Ethan couldn't be here, but knowing Ethan, he's probably scaling some mountain right now, right? So <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah, it probably is. Uh, if people wanted to find out more about you, you are still sort of partially active, even though you're retired. So maybe you're only semi-retired or bit retired. Where can people find you? Yeah, I've got a site, the Crepuscular Circus, um, which is kind of a play. You've kind of the word is similar to uh, obviously Twilight, Twilight in the Valley of Nerds. It's sort of an extension of that, a little bit different. Uh, and then I'm at Brad Casemore on Twitter. Uh, and now, you know, Drew's given me reasons to think about uh, Twitter alternatives. So uh, I'm, I'm being in future, be on one of those two. Okay. Uh, Drew, where can people find you if they wanted more? 
Uh, I am blogging on Packet Pushers. You can find me on LinkedIn and I am, uh, I still have a presence on Twitter, but I'm putting most of my energy now into Blue Sky. So if you want to follow me there, it's at drewcm.bsky.social. And I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on LinkedIn most of the time. I'm trying to spend more time over there. Twitter's kind of driving me a little bit mad. Thank you so much for making time to listen to today's episode. It's been such a privilege to have you here. Don't forget that we have a whole range of other podcasts out there, Heavy Strategy. We have Network Break, which covers the news and analysis. We have Day2 Cloud, which looks at cloud infrastructure. And we have others, IPv6 Buzz, if you're just into IPv6. So many of them. It would be so great if you could leave a review for us so that more people can find us. Tell your friends about us. If you wouldn't mind going on social media and saying this podcast was the most awesome thing you've heard this week, that would be so helpful. And as always, remember that too much technology would never be enough.